Blog Talk Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. The prison begins after, uh, after slavery. You know, you had all these people on all these plantations, all these farms who are making money. America is built on the exploitation of black labor. America is built on slave labor. So slavery ends, and suddenly the slave codes turn into black codes, right? Because the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, right? But it only abolishes slavery except under the condition of prison. In other words, if you commit a crime, if you're incarcerated, according to the 13th Amendment, slavery is still allowed. So you're technically a slave if you're in prison. Absolutely. You can legally be told what to do. Your labor can be forced, etc. So if, if, no, if, if nobody's a, if you, So think about it like this. You need slaves to keep the economy going. You don't have slaves anymore unless people commit a crime. So what do you do? You make everything a crime. So suddenly the slave codes became the black codes. So now black people can be arrested for vagrancy, for standing outside, for cursing in front of a woman, for being out of town without a job. All of these things, which are fairly arbitrary crimes, or if crimes at all, they take them and they throw them back into the prison. And then they have something called the convict lease system, where the prison can lease the convicts out to the same plantations they left to do the same work that they did as slaves. So now the slaves have become free only to become slaves again through prison. And that is wow. the system that we're dealing with right now, a, a, a new version of the convict lease system. And that's why labor is exploited, and that's why prisons have become even more for profit. That's why we see more privatization, because people because make, people a money, make, make a money in this country on exploited country labor, and this is one example. Change your mind. Stop calling it the things that it is not. It's not mass incarceration. It's not all those things I mentioned before. What is it? Slavery. What do we want to hear? Slavery. What are we fighting? Slavery. That was Mark Anthony Hill that you heard who said you need slaves to keep an economy going. Welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly program, radio program, with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air every Sunday at 7 p.m., and you can find us at abolitiontoday.org. I'm here my name is Max Barthes, and I'm here with my co-host, Yusef Assar. Peace, Yusef. Hey, peace. Peace and blessings to you, Max, and to everyone that's listening. Word. I got Tribal Ring right behind me. She sits in the office and listens live. You know, I mean, she got the best seat in the house uh, for one of the most, I, re- I think, one of the most informative shows you can tune into tonight. We, we're really going into detail on the circumstances that we deal with on a regular basis uh, with modern-day slavery and human trafficking. It's, uh, some of it's just so blatant. Like what we're going to be looking at tonight, which is part of a two-week uh, investigation. We've actually investigated for far more than two weeks, but we'll be airing this results of these investigations over the next two weeks. Tonight, we're going over Alabama's prison system, the motives and the intentions behind what they're doing. And then next week, we're going to do the same thing with Mississippi. And if you think Alabama's bad, where can we get to Mississippi? Yusuf? Huh. 
for those that may be tuning in for the first time, you know, we focus mainly on the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which cites neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And we, you'll hear us often refer to the exception clause. Because after it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, it says except. And for those that, you know, don't really understand that word except, it's used as a conjunction, meaning it's used before a statement that forms an exception to the one that just that was just made. So slavery is abolished except, and, you know, here in the United States, we don't really read the 13th Amendment. We always say, oh, the 13th Amendment, you know, freed the slaves but we never actually read it, and therefore we don't understand how slavery has never been abolished and it still exists within the United States. And, in fact, it's thriving greater now than it did during chattel slavery. Yeah, numerically speaking, it is uh, on, on a larger scale with more people involved, which means more suffering uh, involved and uh, everything, just about everything that you can think of post-transatlantic slave trade that was going on in the United States is still going on in the United States, but it's done under cover of these prisons and jails now. So we're dealing Absolutely. with a crisis at the moment, as everybody is well aware. Uh, we do focus specifically on modern-day slavery, and we're able to chew bubblegum and walk even during a crisis. <laughs> So, you know, we can monitor the system that we're dealing with it at the same time focus on the issue of slavery because when this virus is gone, there's still going to be people who need to be freed and who have unjust, been unjustly incarcerated by the millions. Um, but speaking of being freed, this act of God is, is doing that on a, a very large scale. A lot of prisoners are being freed across the country due to concerns that the jails and prisons themselves will be more, nothing more than an incubator for uh, COVID-19. And uh, they're expecting mass, uh, massive amounts of uh, casualties to occur, from particularly the sick and elderly within the prisons. As a matter of fact, the Attorney General Barr just recently announced that he wants the federal prisons to start releasing prisoners of 60 years of age and older who are eligible to be able to, to be uh, released in a home confinement program where they basically send you to your house to confine yourself. And he said that as many as 60% of the prison population at that age, and I think the number was 18,000, are eligible for this type of release. And that's just one example from the federal end, but on a state and county and city end, other prisons and jails are doing much the same, releasing elderly, sick, uh, they're stopping making arrests. They're stopping the tickets and fines. Uh, the Justice Department is almost coming to a standstill. Yes, sir? Absolutely. I'm, I'm hearing all kinds of stories all over the country of how, you know, things that are usually uh, enforced in mass aren't even being enforced now because of the uh, COVID-19. And it just goes to show that, you know that it's 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 taking a deep deep uh putting a big dent into the financial status of the system and eventually it's going to collapse within itself you're absolutely right 
and I'll put some time aside towards the later part of the program where we're going to go into detail about the financial aspects of this when it comes to the system of slavery and uh, how it, does it affect this uh, prison slavery system. And we've been taking a look, Googling all over the place, but we'll get into that one later, man. There was some information you wanted to share, and there's a clip I want to play in this opening segment. But first, let's get your information out of the way. You had some uh, a video that came from, was it Arizona? Yes. No, not Arizona. It's from, yes, I'm sorry, Arizona, from Phoenix, Arizona. It's from FCI, Phoenix. A it young gentleman. It comes, sorry? Tell us about it. This comes uh, via, uh, my goodness, I'm sorry, Max. I was scrolling down looking for something else, and I went past what I was actually. <laughs> oh, I can dig it, man. We got a lot of information to go through here, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just so much to discuss. But mm-hmm. if you just, Never if enough you time. Give me a few seconds, I can get to that. Oh, so coming out of that would like to for those that would and, like to read about the articles that we're, we're t- talking about right now, uh, we have a, an assistant here helping us today, Jeanette Smith, and who's going to be sharing that directly through Abolition Today on Facebook's social media page. So you can check these links out and the stories that we're talking about for yourself. yourself. Absolutely. This, this comes by way of uh, Prison Radio, another uh, group of comrades of ours that deal with the prison conditions and and the modern-day slavery as it exists within the prison system. Uh, the gentleman's name, he goes he goes by the name Solo. He called in, and he was explaining the current situations regarding coronavirus at FCI Phoenix. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was uh, money was supposed to be spent getting all kinds of supplies for them, but instead of them actually spending the money on the supplies, they did something like sew a couple of pieces of cloth together and put strings on them, and they issued that to them as supposed to being makeshift masks as opposed to actually, you know, spending the money on the actual mask. So a lot of people there are sick. Uh, he himself is in his 60s where he already had a compromised immune system, so he's very worried about that. But as Max said, that that post itself is up on our Abolition Today page, and you'll see I just added the video maybe an hour ago, so it's towards the top of the page. Max? Did I lose Max? I was on mute, brother. I'm sorry. All oh, across yeah. the country. Listen, it's going to happen to me, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. We, we've got to get a better system working on it. You know, I'm not using my headphones today because that echo was annoying. And uh, I'm, I still haven't moved into my office at the uh, Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. Uh, going to happen in the very near future. Maybe things will be a little different in there where I'll have all my equipment and be able to work from there. But for now, I'm using the phone. So, it gets staticky or too much noise, just let a brother know. We're working with what we got until we can get what we need. Uh, right. As I said, all across the country, uh, we're hearing how individual jails, counties, states, prisons are uh, dealing with this. On the, uh, it, it, there's no unified method of how to deal with a pandemic in prisons and jails. So this is all new territory, basically, for them. And they're doing what they've been saying for many years that they could not do. 
that they weren't able to do, and that was simply let people go who was no, a threat to no one and had no business being in the prisons or the jails to begin with. They were only there because you're using the whole system as an economic development program. And the people who are targeted are those who have always been targeted since the founding of this country. Uh, of course, in this new slavery era, anybody can be a slave of any color or complexion or race or creed. But let the doubts be diminished immediately that it does focus specifically on people who are non-white. Absolutely. Anyone that argues with that, I mean, they just are arguing for the sake of argument. For the sake of argument, you know what I mean? It, it, it is what it is. The facts speak for themselves, which is what we want to present tonight. And we're going to kind of, you know, tell the story and wrap it up in a bow at the end and leave you with that special feeling when you leave here from this program tonight where you've learned something and you feel some special kind of way about what it is we need to do. So we're going to present some facts about Alabama tonight. I want to start off with the police, uh, as a matter of fact. But before I do that, I want to play that clip from Attorney uh, Barr for everybody to hear. So I don't know, would you call it good news, Yusuf, that they're releasing people or suggesting that people be released across the country? It's good. Uh, I say it's good news, but how about we say it like that? All right, let's play the clip. Last week, uh, I asked the BOP to start doing some assessment work to see uh, if it was possible to expand home confinement, particularly for those older uh, prisoners who had served substantial parts of their sentence and did no longer pose a threat and may have underlying conditions that make them particularly vulnerable. Uh, and uh, they've been doing that work. Uh, 10,000, we have 10,000 inmates over over 60. Uh, generally speaking, about a third of our inmates uh, have, have pre-existing conditions. 40% uh, of those serving uh, sentences, 40% uh, of that 10,000 are serving sentences for violent crime or sex offenses. Um, we have authorities under the First Step Act and under other general authorities uh, to uh, release, that would permit us to release to home confinement in certain designated circumstances. And uh, I've asked uh, and issued uh, a memorandum just today to Bureau of Prisons uh, to increase the use of home confinement uh, based on a number of factors, including some of the statutory uh, factors that we have to consider and are appropriate to consider, um, and uh, other eligibility uh, uh, standards. I mean, one of the things we have to assess is whether that individual, this is a case by case, will be more safe in the particular circumstance in which they're gonna find themselves. Um, and uh, in, in many cases, uh, that may not be the case. Uh, we also have to provide that anyone who is released to home confinement is quarantined before they go out for 14 days to ensure that we're not putting people out in the community who have it. But we are now in the process of trying to expand home confinement uh, as part of you know, trying to control uh, the spread of this infection. I would say generally the history, my, my sense is that
week, uh, I asked the BOP to start. They had an attorney uh, general bar uh, telling states that they want to start sending people home, elderly, 60 years and up. And he said that as many as there's 10,000 of those, 2% of them are eligible. And then he pointed out that 40% are not eligible because they're in for violent crimes or sex offenses. I would leave that as questionable because uh, one of the things that I found out and uh, about Alabama, and it's not just Alabama, but there was a time when Alabama was the only state that they considered every uh, property crime as a violent crime. And they also had or, or still do have the three strike laws. So in Alabama, any theft was a violent crime and you were incarcerated under violent crime laws. So violent crime, they would have to be case by case so we could see who and why. Yusuf? Absolutely. You know, when we look at, uh, and this is something that we're going to get into over the course of many shows, just dealing with the Constitution of Alabama, of how it's set up, you know, where you now found that it's 40 times longer than the United States Constitution, and it's it's it really governs each county and municipality itself, as opposed to where you have some states where you'll have county executives and you'll have other officials that make laws, but in essence, the, the Alabama Constitution runs the entire state, so it gives a lot of a lot less control. And therefore, it gives more power to the governor and to the state legislature. Yeah, it's uh, the, I think it's one of the longest constitutions in the world. <laughs> uh, thousands of words. Uh, I would the one, but in, within those thousands and thousands and buckets and buckets of words are an exception to slavery, just like twenty-four other states have. And that's where it says slavery is, is abolished in the state of Alabama, except for prisoners duly convicted. Right. It's the except, fine print, man. Less, John what, what it all, some use except, some use unless, and there the like words. is in one of them. Yeah. There are three words that they use. It's except, otherwise, and unless. So out of the 25 state and federal constitutions that have an exception to slavery, they only use those three words, three synonyms meaning the same thing, that this group of people are the exception to the rule and can be and will be subject to enslavement. And it just goes so, yeah. on and on and on. And, you know, the roots of the slavery system that we have today uh, goes all the way back to police and slave catchers, which is where they came from, you know, fugitive slave laws and there was a time in South Carolina when all adults were required to be armed and be slave catchers. <laughs> you know, you could be charged if you let one get away. Uh, and one of the things that I want to look at tonight is going to start with a clip from this gentleman by the name of John Grossman. Uh, John Grossman is a retired lieutenant colonel. Uh, he's been in all kinds of wars and blah, 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 blah. But as of the past couple of decades, he's been traveling the country uh, writing books and explaining to policemen how to deal with what he calls killology. Isn't that what it's called? He said killology. Killology. And killology for him, yeah, is the idea. Of, it's basically the casual killing clause of the 1700s, where he was right. murdering people, and he, he, he teaches them how to deal with this life-altering moment and what he feels is the way police 
should deal with it. And he, he is so well-respected that he required reading in police academies across the country, in FBI uh, academies across the country, and he was a consultant for the president of the United States. If you remember not too long ago, the president started saying that the reason we have so much violence in America as pertains to some of these young white racist males who are going out murdering people en masse is due to video games. Well, the idea came from John Grossman. <laughs> That's one of his narratives. So let's listen to just a clip from the film Do Not Resist, which is one of the three films we suggest that you see in order to understand modern slavery better. That's Slavery by Another Name, PBS, 13th, and Do Not Resist. So this is from Do Not Resist, and it's John Grossman. <laughs> Last week, uh, I... Hold on, bear with me there. <laughs> the policeman is the man of the city. Heard of the mountain man, the frontiersman? Nobody talks about frontiersmen anymore. We still talk about policemen. You are to your city, your county, your state, but the frontiersman was the frontier. You fight violence. What do you fight it with? Superior violence. Righteous violence, eh? Violence is your tool. Violence is your enemy. Violence is the realm we operate in. You are men and women of violence. You must master it, or it will destroy you, yeah? Well, I've been on the road for 18 years. People know me. They trust me. I get a depth of information. I ask questions other people won't ask. Cop says, knock down, drag out, fight, cuffed them and stuffed them. Finally get home at the end of the ship and... Cop says, gunfight, bad guys down, I'm alive. Finally get home at the end of the incident and they all say, the best sex I've had in months. Both partners are very invested in some very intense sex. There's not a whole lot of perks that come with this job. You find one. Relax and enjoy it. <laughs> John Grossman. Thank that you. That is the clip for take. Do not resist. Um, and it is available on YouTube. You can uh, find it there. I think you have to pay to get it there, but it's worth the price. And he was talking directly to a class of policemen. Uh, police academy there about how they should feel. That's said ever after you've murdered, killed, death. All of these things happening, it's such a thrill. He's explaining to them how they're frontiersmen. At no point does he point to them that, you know, you're civil servants. You work for the people and you swore an oath to protect their rights within the Constitution. But these guys don't even know what's in the Constitution. They're just out here apparently trying to get an erection that they couldn't get otherwise by murdering somebody. You, sir? <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, Max, but, you know, it's so absurd just hearing that. You know, and then this is what's being drilled into the heads of these officers. And as you notice, a lot of police departments are recruiting directly from the military. And being, you know, ex-military myself, you know, I remember the mindset that we were drilled into and all of the mantras and the little anoctides that we had to 
recite all day and before we get in bed, once we get out of bed, before we do this, before we eat, before we do anything, and we were really robots. And these people, many of these military personnel are coming from combat situations now that, you know, we've been in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places that people have no idea that they're there. You know, like some of the places that I've been, you just people didn't know we were there. But they come, and now it's rather than them being ingrained back into society, they come out and they're getting this type of training in the academy to where, okay, now you're this killing machine. And actually he has another book that's called On Killing. And he broke it down where he's dealing with... Uh, uh, on on dealing with combat, and he says that the world is made up into three groups: sheep's wolves, and sheep dogs. And they're the sheep dogs that are going to protect the sheep from the wolves, and that they're blessed with the gift of aggression. So their thing is to always be aggressive, always be aggressive, always be aggressive. And then you 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 teach this to many people who already have this problem of adaptation, because like I said, I'm ex-military, and many people that come out of the military, you come home and you're not really right. It takes you a lot of years to really become right again, whatever that means. But just feeding that mentality, and then we can see why many officers are so aggressive and that there's no de-escalation, because they're not trained to de-escalate. That's not the purpose. Yes, I'm here with you, brother, just listening. Okay. And uh, in, in agreement with you, uh, it's, a, it's amazing. And some of this, uh, the film, further into the film, right after that, as a matter of fact, they have this SWAT team that goes out, and the reporter's following them and asking them questions, and they're all excited like kids about to go to their first baseball game and participate in the sport. And then they roll up onto a house that looks like it isn't worth more than the car that was parked in front of them. Uh, a really bad house filled with women and children and young men. And they raid this house. They break the windows unnecessarily because the doors are wide open. Uh, they they break through the doors, which it was just a scream, man. <laughs> they bust the doors down, and they search every inch of this house of a black family and find absolutely nothing. They even look through the children's backpacks and everything like that. And then once that, that was done and they had nobody and nothing to arrest them for, looking for marijuana, they got back into the big-ass militarized slot machine and rolled off into the sunset without so much as a we're sorry, our bad. Um, that's the type of training that they're receiving, and the thrills that they're hoping to see is to have somebody jump up and be bad or act like you don't know and see what happens because they haven't killed anybody yet. Everybody wants to get blooded so they can go home and screw their wives for the best sex ever. Who doesn't want to have the best sex ever? Just the teachings that the police are learning. And when we, we're talking about a million police men and women across the country. Well, we have found through social media study by independent organizations that at least 20% of them are openly professing racial and violent ideology on social media. So you're talking about 200,000 of them at least that are racist and violent. That's a freaking army that's being trained to go out and terrorize people. Yusuf? Right. Right. Absolutely. 
You know, so when we hear people talk about, oh, it's only a few of them, oh, yeah, there's one bad apple. We know how the saying goes, one one bad apple destroys the entire bunch. And so when we really look at the numbers behind, well, what do we consider, you know, there's only a few? I know you were big on the numbers. You have the numbers. What is it, about 900,000 to a million uh, law enforcement officers in the United States? A million law enforcement officers throughout the United States. And so if we say, what, one out of every ten? One out of every five. One out of every five was openly writing racist and violent rhetoric or sharing such through their personal social media pages. One out of five. So if we're doing one out of five, that's 50,000 right there. Easily. Easily. I don't know about and that's other people the thinking. ones that are openly admitting it. Right. Those are the ones that are publicly exposing their thoughts. Uh, 50,000 so like walk around with a license to kill. So they yeah, can go so home and have the best sex ever. That's the motive, some of the motives behind what we're seeing with modern-day slavery and human trafficking. But it goes much further than that. Uh, on a Absolutely. state level, what's happening in Alabama is outrageous. And I happen to have found an interview with a local interviewer. And I, God help me, I'm sorry, but I couldn't find his uh, name and information. But I do have the interview that he had with two state representatives. Uh, one was, let me see, pull him up here, was the commissioner, and the other was a state senator, and we're talking about Chairman Troy Stubbs, County Commissioner District 3, and Senator Clyde Chambliss Jr. out of the Montgomery office, and they were talking about what is important about the prisons in Alabama and keeping those prisons going, not only keeping them going, but expanding the prison system. They had just been infused with $100 million from the Department of Justice, but they were also and still are in the midst of a constitutional crisis where the Department of Justice has deemed them unconstitutional in the practices that they're doing. Now, amidst all of this, they sit back and basically admit to the whole idea of what it is they're really trying to achieve, to use the prison system in Alabama as an economic development program, which it always has been, and to enforce racial and class-based biases. Here's the interview. Elmore County is ground zero of any prison reform efforts in the state. The county is home to five facilities operated by the Alabama Department of Corrections, which create a total of 595 jobs. Elmore has the most correctional facilities of any county in the state. The facilities here make up about 17% of the DOC's total employment. Chairman, give me an idea of what the Elmore County Commission is doing to preserve the Department of Corrections presence in Elmore County. Yeah, we're very focused on doing what's best for Elmore County and the citizens here. We have a lot of exposure uh, to the corrections uh, business here in Elmore County. We've got several prisons, lots of employees. And so we want to make sure that we're doing what's best for the citizens here and protecting our uh, economic interests and, and the jobs here. It's not just Elmore County that benefits from these jobs in, in the Department of Corrections facilities. That's right. We have over a $30 million payroll and over 700 jobs here. 
And many of those employees do come from surrounding counties, Autauga County, Tallapoosa, Coosa County, and Montgomery County. And so we recognize that this is a, a regional um, event that we need to uh, monitor and, and get the pulse of uh, throughout the legislative process. Senator, you were key in getting the current prison reform bill out of the Senate into the House. Give us an idea of why you think the bill is going to work. What are the strengths? Well, there's a couple of key components. Uh, one is we did away with the design build aspect and went back to the current design bid aspect that we use in state government now. So that was a big, uh, a big win to try to get that out. Uh, but the biggest issue is, uh, especially with Elmore County, uh, and, and making sure that we keep those jobs there and uh, have that opportunity. Uh, the way the bill is structured now, uh, Elmore County has a say in what's going to happen. Uh, the original bills, they really had no say. It was just going to happen. Now we have some ability to affect the process. So that's a, that's a big, big win in the bill. Clyde, Elmore County is in your district. How important is it to keep all the prisons in Elmore County? Well, it's very important, but more important than that is the wardens who are there in those prisons, working in those prisons. Those wardens are the ones who are protecting us as a society from those who would seek to do us harm. I represent those wardens. So getting them and the prisons into a, a more secure, a more stable environment is very, very important because those wardens deserve to go home to their families every night. Now, what about the economic development for Elmore County? How important is that for the continued economy? It, it is important, and uh, if one of these prisons are built there, it actually would be an increase probably from around 400 jobs to 700 jobs. So it could be a significant economic uh, positive impact if, if, the, if a new prison is built there. There you go. Um, with your own ears, you just heard it. They told you what it is they're doing. This is an economic development program. It started out with 500 prisoners or 500 employees. Worth, uh, no, yeah, 500 employees, then another 700 employees, and that 700 employees worth $31 million annually in, in budgets. And then they were talking about adding another 30 or 400 uh, jobs to that. And we're just talking about the people that's employed. We're not talking about the revenue being paid to places like the water bills and the electric company and the cleanup crews and everything that's associated with having and maintaining a prison. Uh, they basically had built human cash registers right in the middle of town, so to speak, where they just have people coming in and out making all of this money uh, generate through this community. And Alabama is a place where the majority of the incarcerated are black people, but the majority of the prisons are within suburban uh, places where it's a majority white. They're also counted towards the census in terms of voting, you know. So you have these people being taken from their own community, put into another community inside cages where they're held uh, for a profit and work for free, and then their voices as a voting block is being added to the community that's doing it to them. Yusuf? Absolutely, and, you know, he also mentioned that they make up 17% of the employment pool of the state, of all employees within the state. And right. when he asked how, when the reporter in the interview asked, how important is it to keep these jails within the county? I was expecting him to say, we're going to lose jobs or we're going to lose revenue, but 
I guess he saw that it, it may have been a setup question. He didn't really want to mention it, but we know how important jails are to these small towns all throughout the country, that many of them beg to have prisons built there because it boosts the economy. And it also helps them when it comes towards uh, elections and gerrymandering and things of that nature. They've gotten really good with money laundering because that's basically what they're doing, where the senator said they went from the process of to uh, design and build to design and bid. What's that mean? It means they stopped actually building prisons with government money, but just took a big old chunk of cash and seen who would build the prison for them and who would maintain the prison for them, and they would give them this cash and then monthly payments for doing so. <laughs> so you know they don't even have to use they don't even have to do it anymore under the as a government construction thing now it's basically just bidding it all out and as I mentioned earlier, a hundred million was already put into the system from k i v which was allegedly to fix the problems in there, and the problems are very serious. we're talking about constitutional violations of the right. Eighth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the men and women in these Alabama prisons are in inhumane conditions. They're being uh, brutalized. They're being murdered. The women at Tutwiler's prisons have for the last three decades been subject to rape and abuse by guards who have admitted to the wrongdoing and are still employed by the damn prison. The Department of Justice has investigated the Alabama prisons statewide and determined that, yes, they are uh, uh, performing constitutional violations uh, like the Eighth Amendment. And that's cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> and, and they're not doing it because there's so many criminals. They're doing it because it's a moneymaker. You said, I'm about to blow gasket, brother. You better step in. <laughs> <laughs> And that's exactly what it is. And and then it always goes back to that the system is operating as intended. Because someone may hear that and say, wow, why don't they do something about this? Well, they don't care, one. And number two, there's no public outrage behind it except those that it directly affects. You know, no one has a problem with it until it directly affects them. But everyone else, it's just, oh, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, or all of the other things without factoring in everything that leads to these conditions, the why behind everything. That's always the thing that's going to get ignored as to why these, why, why these numbers exist, and why these conditions exist, and why nothing is being done about it. There's some counties, like the one he was just talking about, where prison conditions are so bad that occupancy is at 200%. you got bodies stacked on top of bodies on top of bodies, 200% occupancy. They were ordered right. at uh, one point by the Supreme Court to have to reduce that. And again, the first thing they said was, we need $800 million in order to build more new prisons. Uh, which I believe has already been passed, another $800 million to go into their slavery system. And remind, right. It was never any conversation not, about, well, let's look into some alternatives to incarceration or no, they don't some want anybody measures. Go. Never that type of talk. It's always, well, give us more money. 
more jails, more bars, more guards. Wasn't that the line from Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> that's right. That's right. As a matter of fact, that one yeah. representative, uh, Shameless, said that's who he represents, the wardens. And mind you, he's from Alabama, so he's talking about the warden from Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's my man. I represent him. <laughs> you know? Hey, that's all they want. We want to lock more people up because if they if they if they if they're building more jails, then they need to arrest more people. You know, because that's, the history, that's their thinking. That's their thinking. Throughout the civil rights history, that's one of the things that's always been foremost in the effort of the civil rights movement is to get the same rights that everybody else has. Uh, but apparently that is still not the case in America. And you can have your rights violated all day, every day. As long as you're in a prison or a jail, it doesn't matter. You're no longer a human, according to the way we're doing things in the United States today. My word for it. Let me play the next clip, which is the news report on this investigation from the Department of Justice. You're hearing it here today, right now, on Abolition Today. Officials in Alabama have until next week to improve safety throughout the state's troubled prison system. The Justice Department demanded an overhaul after an investigation found conditions unconstitutional, violating the Eighth Amendment protections against cruel and unusual punishment. Jeff Pegues takes us inside. These are just some of the 2,600 photographs taken inside Alabama's prisons. Images of horrid conditions. Inmates who were killed by another prisoner's hand or their own, like Betty Head's son, who died after trying to hang himself in this decrepit cell block. Prison system killed my only son, Billy Thornton. 31-year-old Billy Thornton was just months away from finishing a six-year sentence for a statutory rape. Inmates told her that her mentally ill son would cry for help but be routinely ignored. So he would call for help and no one would They would respond. ignore him. Let's keep going. Yes, sir. They would ignore him. Alabama prisons have the highest suicide rate in the country, three times the national average, 15 in 15 months. Things are really out of control and need to be reined in. Maria Morris of the Southern Poverty Law Center says mentally ill inmates even those on suicide watch are held in solitary confinement where they have little contact with officers. What that basically means is they're warehousing them. They're sticking them into segregation units and letting them suffer, in some cases letting them commit suicide. But it's not just the mentally ill who are suffering. A two-year Justice Department investigation found conditions throughout the entire Alabama prison system are unconstitutional and that an excessive amount of violence, sexual abuse, and prisoner deaths happen on a regular basis, making the state's prisons a deadly place to work as well. I am thankful that I walk out alive. This worker, who has to be fully disguised for fear of being fired for speaking out, told us the situation is dire. We need more mental health workers. We need more officers. More people are going to die. State prison officials say there are approximately 1,400 officers, about half of what's needed to oversee a prison population of 16,000. This has been a problem that's been 30 years in the making. 
The commissioner of the Alabama Department of Corrections, Jeff Dunn, says $125 million has already been appropriated to raise staffing levels, curb violence, and increase attention to inmates' mental health. Why should people think that things are going to change? Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen, first of all, the coming together of several partners who are committed to fixing this. The DOJ report said that the state is deliberately indifferent to the risks that prisoners face. Those words must sting. Uh, they do, and, and we, uh, we've embraced that challenge. The Southern Poverty Law Center has sued the Alabama Department of Corrections. A federal judge is forcing the prison system to make changes. And like the courts, the DOJ has issued an ultimatum of its own change or be forced to comply. Too late to save Billy Thornton. Why did y'all kill Junior? Why did you all kill Junior? Jeff Begay's CBS News, Birmingham. There it is. Um, that's what's going on in these Alabama prisons, and no matter how bad you may think it is, so we've ten times worse. This is just what the cameras were allowed to see. We have friends who support us from the inside, organizers as part of this program who have informed us of some of the horrors and tragedies that are occurring behind these prison walls. And when they talk about the mentally ill, let's just throw that in perspective for a minute if we can. In places of high poverty, usually occupied by black families, we have found throughout the past 30 or 40 years that they've been subject to lead poisoning. Lead poisoning, like what happened in Flint and what happens in Montgomery, Alabama, which is one of the highest poverty rates in the industrialized world. Now, imagine, if you will, the results of that. Lead poison causes a person to have cognitive uh, difficulties, mental disabilities, and to be prone to violent acts. And these people start doing that within generations of being freaking poisoned. And then you go and hunt them like wild game and put them in cages because it's all their fault, right? You and, then you, and then you throw in substandard education, generations of substandard That's education. Lead, lead poison doesn't even allow you to have an above-average intelligence. You just can't do it. You're not capable. You've been, your cognitive abilities have been reduced not only for your generation, but your son and your grandsons and granddaughters beyond you are going to have the same problem. Absolutely. And so much of the state living in extreme poverty, and many people just have given up. And again, going back to, to the way their state constitution is run, so you have you know, in, in many cities, you know, you can go to your city council and you can complain. You can have certain things change, but everything goes through the state there. Everything goes based on the state constitution. Many of many of these, the county and municipal officials are powerless on the surface. Many of them are probably comfortable with everything going on to begin with because it's about putting bodies in those jails. Didn't he say releasing is not the answer to the overcrowding? That's exactly what they said. They don't want to release nobody. Um, And, you know, the answer to them always seems to be just give us more money. So now they just got $125 million. I said $100 million was $125 million more to fix the problems, but the problems are not being fixed. 
This is just slavers demanding ransom for people's bodies that they're holding hostage. They're getting substandard uh, treatment as far as medical is concerned. In the midst of this pandemic, there is going to be a massive amount of deaths within the Alabama prison system, and nobody really cares. Like in the book by Jay Mancini, slavery, comic leasing in the American South, uh, he said the quote that, the difference between slavery and convict leasing was with convicts so plentiful they were seen as disposable. And that's what they're looking at, these people now behind these bars, as disposable. Nobody cares about how they got in prison. The only thing that matters to Alabamians, a red state, is that they're in prison. And if they're in prison, they must have did something to deserve to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, Mancini, he's the one that did the uh, one dies, get another, right? One, one dies, get another, right. Convict leasing in the American South. That's it. Side. One dies, get another. That's, mm-hmm. that's and, you know, the situation. They mentioned that the, the suicide rate is triple that of the nation. So, again, these aren't suicides. These are murders. Khalif Browder did not commit suicide. He was murdered, <laughs> you know? These are murders that are happening behind these prison walls for 16,000 men. Uh, that's not counting the women. As I mentioned, Tutwiler's prison is one of those horrible atrocities that are occurring. If I were the governor right. of this state, I would call out the National Guard, put the freaking prison guards and personnel under arrest, put the police stations on lockdown, take it over with the National Guard because the people are under assault and need that kind of oppression. Uh, protection from this systemic oppression. We're talking about Alabama people. We ain't talking about freaking Rhode Island. We're not talking about California. We're talking about Alabama, where a letter from a Birmingham jail was written by Martin Luther King Jr. when he was incarcerated, where Bull Connor was talking about how he wouldn't let these Negroes into his community, where they had the Just Mercy, the film that just, just came out, Just Mercy, was about what happened in the Alabama prisons. These are one of the most racist places on earth. When the transition occurred from slavery to convict leasing, just prior to the Civil War, Alabama, their revenue, uh, 90% of it came from slavery. After the Civil War, nearly 80% of their revenue came from convict leasing. They didn't skip a beat. (laughs) And here we are today. And don't tell me what they won't do. Don't tell me what Jethro from down in Montgomery won't go do to those Negroes running all around his county. Um, we have got a clip coming in from uh, The Daily Show and Trevor Noah, where he talks about one sheriff. And I found that there's multiple sheriffs who are doing this. But one sheriff is the one he's talking about, who has funneled off three-quarters of a million dollars from the jail's food fund by starving the prisoners, and apparently it's all legal. He takes home three-quarters of a million dollars while thousands of men in his jails starve. And I'm going to go ahead on that clip so we can uh, catch up. We're a little bit behind. So here it is. You always hear about how thankless it is to be a public servant in America. But down in Alabama, there's one sheriff there who has found his job very enriching. Alabama sheriff accused of keeping money meant to feed inmates for himself. A published report hints that Etowah County Sheriff Todd Entrican took so much of that money, he bought an expensive beach house. Okay, that is wild. 
Apparently, this sheriff took $750,000 that was supposed to feed inmates in a prison and used it to buy a beach house. But maybe the reason the sheriff wasn't trying to hide it is that he didn't care about being caught because it turns out, and this shocked me when I found this out, in Alabama, it's not against the law. Because a Depression-era state law makes Alabama sheriffs personally responsible for feeding inmates, the performance bonus Entrican gave himself is legal. Over the last three years, the sheriff's food program has run under budget, letting him pocket the leftovers. I haven't done anything wrong. If, they, if, if it's wrong, somebody needs to change the law. Anybody that gets out here and works every day, and at the end of the day, if you make a profit, it's yours. <laughs> okay, that, like, first of all, first of all, I cannot believe that that's a law. Any money you don't use to do your government job, you get to keep for yourself. I feel like that just gives public officials an incentive to do their jobs badly. And by the way, this wouldn't be as bad if the sheriff was taking the money, but only after feeding the inmates. But just look at what this guy is passing off as food. Etowah County Sheriff Todd Endrickens proud of his jail food. These meal trays serve to inmates every day. But I'm sorry, man. Just look at the food that he serves the prisoners. That, look at that. Look at just like white everything. The only thing that white normally in Alabama is a Klan rally. What is that? <laughs> and like, and like once you've learned, once you've learned that the sheriff makes money off of prisoners, it makes you hear all of his other law enforcement decisions in a new light. This is a major story. Heroin, heroin, fentanyl. You know, we've got to do something. Treating folks isn't the way to stop this problem. We've got to put people back in jail. We've got to put folks in jail and make them accountable, hold them accountable for what they're doing. Yeah, it makes sense. Of course he wants more people in prison because that means more food budget for him to take home. <laughs> hey, he's probably walking around his town like jaywalking, 30 years in prison. Some kid walks up to him, he's like, Billy stole my lollipop. He's like, well, Billy's going to jail. And you're also going for snitching. I'm sorry, this guy's unbelievable. He's probably the only person who watched Shawshank Redemption and was inspired by the warden. That's who he seems like. There he is. Yes, sir. Exactly. You know, and, and this is just one sheriff. I mean, Alabama has 67 counties and I believe 65 county jails because two counties or four counties share two jails down there. So 65 county jails. This is just one operating like this and we probably if if they did the research they probably would find that all of them have that same opinion you know that since it's the law i mean if it's the law most people are going to follow what the law is especially when it comes to pocketing money and then you know and that towards the end of the clip where he said talking about the drugs and he said you can't treat this you know we're talking about people with drug addictions in mm-hmm. his opinion treat them you must incarcerate them that's what he said clear as day. We got to put them in jail. We got to hold them accountable. Put them yeah, in jail. Treat and, them. Uh, and what they'll do, they'll treat, they'll treat them this in jail. They'll treat them in jail because there's, there's, there's big money in that as well with these these uh, staff that they bring in and they contract people to come in and, you know, make them go through these 12-step programs and everything. It gives another reason to hit them at the board so they can't make their parole because they didn't complete an alcohol and substance abuse therapy tra- uh, program. Many, you know, so it's always going to be tied into money. They don't care about the treatment, really. 
man, there has never been a day in this country's history where it was safe to be black and be in Alabama. I mean, the people there of color are completely under siege. They're in the highest poverty rates in the freaking nation, child poverty rates, um, and the subject to poison, uh, what they call the uh, environmental racism with the lead poisoning and all these different things that they're subject to, which literally changes them for generations and stunts their growth as human beings for generations to come. And in the midst of all of it, you've got these picture-perfect-looking racist white supremacist Alabama cops who are starving people so they can buy beach house mansions for $750,000. And then getting in front of press releases explaining why everybody needs to go in the jails. We need more people in the jails so you can make more of that food money. And we found several cases just with a quick search where other sheriffs are actually doing this. Uh, it's like they're operating above the law in Alabama and can get away with anything. Things have not changed much in the past 50, 60 years in Alabama. <sighs> you know, sometimes I just have to take a deep breath because it, it really gets under my skin. And, yeah, sometimes it just leaves me speechless. Well, if that's the case, brother, let's go ahead and take it to a music break because every revolution, every movement needs a music uh, to to roll with that you can listen to and enjoy. And considering the circumstances, let's go with today's music break, which is Above the Law by the OJs.
That's what the OJs said. But you didn't think we had the OGs who were abolitionists too? <laughs> we create slavery, create a war on poverty. <laughs> That's what they said, man. Go on, yeah, ring man. the bell. OJs. Man, everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on. They're busted. It's wide open. We've got some hardcore uh, Negro peons who are fighting to keep their positions of power in the slaveocracy that we have, but they're not going to last long. Because look what's happening to them right now, uh, all the money that they're losing left and right, which is one of the things that we put aside just to discuss. But before that, after the song and what we just went over, let's go ahead and open up the lines for phone calls. If you want to join the conversation, call us at 515-605-9814. That's 515-605-9814. If you're already on the line, just press number one to say that you want to make a comment or a question. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to keep the conversation going until you're ready to join in. You said we were talking about how much money this prison system is losing during this uh, act of God. <laughs> and right. it was, man, it was inspiring to consider. Like, you know, we have done some damage collectively to the prison system over the past 10 years or so. Uh, it started really with divestment programs in Columbia University with the students out there who helped to get Columbia University to divest $30 million. And that was just, you know, a mere 30 mil was nothing, but it created a land, uh, a, a landslide. And that snowball kept flowing to the point where we are at today, where prior to this plague, all of the major banks stopped doing business with private prisons. I mean, they completely stopped. We're talking about SunTrust, uh, Bank of America. All of them decided they're no longer going to be managing prison stock or doing bank, uh, banking with private prisons. And now all you got to do is look around and you'll see how much money is going out the window. They're not writing tickets, no fines, police themselves are infected and those who aren't infected don't want to get infected. So they're not trying to stop nobody on the road who might give them the cooties, you know? Uh, And all across the country, even the federal government is saying you got to let these people go or there's going to be mass die-offs and the people are going to rise up and burn everything down like they did before. Uh, So, you know, the money is just draining. We did some calculating, and uh, over the years, I've heard as much as $500 million a year, or $500 billion a year, as the total value for the prison industry, when you include the money spent by friends and families on behalf of those who are incarcerated and the industries that surround the prison system. So you're talking about a half a trillion dollars a year. This, what they're being hit with right now, could literally be taking away more than half of that. <laughs> That's a huge dent. That's a huge yeah. dent. And we have to look at the other side of it that feeds a lot of people into the system when we start talking about not ticketing for opposite sides of the street parking and all the little municipal violations that people get fines for and end up, in the in the jails because they can't afford to pay the fines. So they yeah. not only are they getting hit from one side, they're getting hit from the other side, both sides, those that are divesting from the prisons and then also the side where it's feeding the money into the prisons. 
the money meaning the bodies. Right. And, and it's hitting the satellite systems that wouldn't exist without the prison industry, like the bail bonds industry. So there was already a movement to end cash bail, which was frustrating bail bond industry all across the, the, the country. And uh, here we are now where they're not even having court proceedings. Like, we're not incarcerating anybody right now. We're not going to do it. So there's nobody who needs bail. <laughs> so bail right. bombing are getting hit, you know. Uh, yeah. Everywhere you look, industries that are associated with the prisons are being hit. In some ways, they're also being exploited, like they're doing in New York with the hand sanitizer. What was it, 100,000 gallons a day they can make in the prisons at 10 and in cents fact, an hour? I'm glad you mentioned New York because it was something that was in the back of my mind and I just couldn't think of. And then I, when, when I remember in New York, they've also begun releasing parole and probation violators who were just there on technicalities, meaning they missed the curfew or, you know, the other little small things, you know, they, they haven't found the job or they missed an appointment somewhere, or, you know, they had a dirty earring, you know, things of this nature that they call technical violations where the person hasn't committed a crime. That's what they mean by a technical violation. It's not like they went out and they committed a new crime. It's just something where it was a stipulation of their parole, and they violated them on that. So I don't have the article in front of me. I just do recall it, but I think the number was they're looking to release around 10,000 of people, 10,000 just on that. So we're talking in New York City, that's HDM, House of Detention for Men, is where parole violators are generally held on Rikers Island. So we're talking almost that entire jail when we say 10,000. Mm. They are bleeding, hemorrhaging uh, resources right now, the prison industry, and I hope they never recover from it. This is the second time that I've seen the for-profit prison industry in such uh, uh, terrible conditions. The last time was when the Obama administration announced that they were considering no longer renewing the contracts they had with private prisons. And that sent their stocks crashing and forced Wall Street to stop trading automatically, or they would have went out of business that day. It was August 18th, 2015, I Thing. It might have been 16, but I think it was two. In any case, this is the second time it's happened. So then nobody's talking about it in the news. I couldn't find any information on how much money is being lost by the prison industry right now. People aren't thinking about that, but we are because <laughs> we're abolitionists, and we know that we're fighting a system of white supremacy primarily, and the only thing that it seems to understand is losing money and losing blood. And at this point, when we started back in the day, you got hit with $30 million. Just recently, you got hit with $250 billion. We're going to hit harder the next time, and you're going to stay down. That's how I'm feeling about it. You said? Well, why not? Burn it down, man. Burn it down. In fact, that's the call for many of, you know, the uh, brothers and sisters in the, in the penal system on Twitter. You hear them burn the prisons. I think that's even one, uh, one uh, Twitter handle is burn down the prisons. Mm-hmm. And you while know, I'm speaking just, of that, I'd like to, you know, right. give, it, give acknowledgement to many of them. You know, the uh, 
burn the prisons, there's prison culture, prison coalition, all the many different uh, people on the inside that have found ways to communicate with the outside in many different manners. You know, that, you know, I always mention that, you know, they're the reason why we do what we do. You know, they, we do this for them because we care. Man, ain't that the truth? You know, my, my grandbabies are here right now. I got 18 grandbabies. I got nine of them are boys. I've had three sons. Of my three sons, two of them went to prison for basically a life sentence. So the odds of that one in three black children expecting to go to prison during their lifetime was higher with me. And I got right. nine grandsons. I cannot imagine that I got to sit here right now and say to myself, well, two or three of y'all are going to go to prison for life. Like, huh? No, I'm going to do everything I can not to allow that inevitability to come to pass. And I think that by, in that sense, we can all think like that. You know, if you've got children out there, they're going to have kids. Is this what you want us to be left with? And, you know, we got a lot of people out there talking about reparations during this period, but none of them are talking about abolition. And wouldn't it make sense I mean, just wouldn't make sense to actually end slavery first before you ask to get paid for it. You would think. You would think. <laughs> you know? and, and if you don't think slavery has not end, hasn't ended, all you got to do is read the 13th Amendment. We read it at the last, the top of the last two shows, so you know what it is. We talk about it all the time. It says except for prisoners duly convicted. And then when you read that and you realize when it was written, and why it was written with a little bit of research, and you look around you and you start counting bodies and realize that we have the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth, and then you start following a few of the dollars, just some of the money, and find out incredible things like, you know, in New York, to incarcerate one person in Rikers Island is more than a quarter of a million dollars a year. You start realizing in your heart and your mind that you're not dealing with a mistake. This is a money-making machine as old right. as man and as old as this country, and it's called slavery. Yeah, and it's operating the way it's supposed to operate, to perfection. Right. To perfection. You know, I, as I said, I'm a slavery abolitionist, brother, and I want to make sure people understand where I come from in this, in this particular instance. I believe that there should be a place where those who do harm to others, like real harm to others, go to pay for their crimes. Uh, I think there are people who need to be separated from society because they are that dangerous to themselves and others around them, or they have done something so heinous that they deserve to be put away to, again, pay for their crimes. But they're still human beings, and they're still citizens and need to be treated as human beings within humane conditions. But that's not what we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with people being treated in inhumane conditions, and at least 70% of them should have never even been in a prison or jail to begin with. You're talking about a country where in 2017 more arrests were made for simple possession of marijuana than for all violent crimes combined. Not everybody in prison and jail is innocent. So we could that's, easily empty these That's correct. When we start guilty. factoring in... Yeah. You know, three strike laws like the the uh, Biden, the B- Clinton Biden bill of 1994. So you have many people that are just sitting in jail. 
there's one person who got 50 years because he stole a pizza. Not robbed someone of a pizza, but he went into a pizzeria, and some pizzerias have their pizzas out on the counter, and the clerk turned around and did something behind him, and the guy snatched the pizza and left the store. When they caught him, he ended up getting 50 years because of a three-strike law. If you remember, the whole three- who actually go through a physical robbery and maybe only get six years. And I'm not saying either one is correct, and I'm and I'm not advocating either. But what we're saying is that the bills like the Clinton Biden bill, and I forgot the name of the the bill that came under uh, Reagan offhand. I can't recall it, but. They're perpetuating these things, that this is what feeds it into the 13th Amendment, straight into slavery, and here we are. Yes, indeed, straight into slavery, and here we are. Um, You know, that Clinton crime bill, that is... Biden is responsible for so much loss of freedom in life in his lifetime. I call him an architect of genocide because he is. He's proud of the fact that he wrote the omnibus crime bill, which was adopted by Clintons and put out during the whole uh, what was called a uh, super predator campaign that was going on. But if you remember, the right. strike laws began with the murder of Polly Class. Polly Class was murdered by an inmate who had been released. He had been, apparently been incarcerated before couple of times, then he was released and he killed this, I think she was a 12-year-old girl, white girl by the name of Polly Class. So that initiated the whole three-strike laws thing, tough on crime, as, you know, the code words they always use about, we got to put these black people in prison. The guy who murdered Polly was a white man, by the way, but that didn't matter. The very first person to be incarcerated is known as Radio Man. He was a homeless veteran in Southern California got busted stealing a car radio. It was his third strike, and he got light for a car radio, and he was black. <laughs> so the first one to get hit with it. Unbelievable. That- Max, my battery is dying, so I'm going to call in from another number. I'll call right back nope. in. Okay, okay. Uh, no problem at all. As a matter of fact, we're coming up to last four minutes before we got to say our goodbyes and put on our final segment. So the line is still open if anybody wants to call in at Five one five six zero five nine eight one four. We've got a few minutes left. If you have a question or a comment, uh, I do promise that tonight we're going to have something special for you as our uh, bridging the gap segment, which is part three now of Ozzy Davis reading Frederick Douglass in association with music and poetry that we put uh, towards the end of our segment. Welcome back, bro. You there? I'm here. All right, no doubt. Well, we, like I was telling you, uh, the people were coming up on the end anyway, man. So we'll get to the point where uh, final comments and quotes for the week. And I'd like to make a reminder that under Abolition Today on YouTube, we have a playlist of suggested films. At this point, there are five. Please take the time, especially when you don't have much else to do right now, and and. Uh, review these films. Uh, the top three to understand slavery, human tra- trafficking, would be Slavery by Another Name, which is Free 13th, which we make available on that playlist. 
And then finally, do not resist. It may cost you a couple dollars unless you're, you know, a sleuth and can find places where you can get it otherwise. But those three, in addition, there's two others uh, that help you to understand the circumstances and how we came to be in them. One is uh, uh, black people in zoos, American zoos with black people in it. And another one is the Jim Crow of the North. So check out the films on our playlist there under suggested viewing for abolitionists. Uh, Yusuf, your final comments for the evening and quotes? My final, con- my final comment would be our main goal is, is fighting to have the exception clause removed from the United States Constitution. And when we say removed, we mean repealed completely to where it's completely removed and also to take it out of the process of what's considered criminal justice in the United States. See, right now, criminal justice is tied to the stock market. So therefore, when money is involved, there can be no justice. So that's our main goal. And when we talk about freedom, as Brother Malcolm would say, if you're not ready to die for it, put the word freedom out of your vocabulary. All right. Let me give my final comments, and then, uh, Brother Yusuf, you'll be introducing our final segment. Uh, My final comments for the evening is, you know, I was our goal to show you tonight motives and intentions, specifically for the state of Alabama, and I think we did that. We showed you, again, in their own words, what it is that they're doing, why they're doing it, who they're doing it to. And we also showed you the paper tiger that is the Department of Justice, which is full of threats and warnings that they never do anything about. Because the only thing that you can do at this point when you're dealing with slavery and human trafficking in places like Alabama is call out the National Guard to protect the people. That's how severe it is. Next week, we're going to talk about Mississippi. And if you thought Alabama was bad, Mississippi, goddamn. Listen, this is all i got to say. The white man isn't defending what he thinks is morally right. He's defending what he thinks is economically profitable. King Jr., the speech of Galilee, August 14th, 1958. This is the Max Parker speech. And so our final segment is going to be the Bridging the Gap segment. Ozzie Davis reads Frederick Douglass. This is part three of of the uh, – segments that we've been playing where he explains the day he stood up and took his last ass whipping. And we're going to follow that by a band called Stay Real. And the song is called Frederick's Song, Freedom. In March 1832, I left Baltimore to live with Thomas Ald, a brother of my master, Hugh Ald. My new master and I had quite a number of differences. He found me unsuitable to his purpose. My city life in Baltimore, he said, had had a very pernicious effect upon me. It had almost ruined me, he claimed, for use as a slave. During the first nine months I lived with him, he gave me a number of severe whippings to break my spirit, all to no good purpose. Finally, he resolved to put me out, as he said, to be broken. And for this purpose, he hired me for one year to a man named Edward Covey, who enjoyed the reputation of being a first-rate hand at breaking young Negroes. Some slaveholders thought it an advantage to allow Mr. Covey to have their slaves for one year or two almost free of charge for the sake of the excellent training they had under his management. 
I left Master Thomas's house and went to live with Mr. Covey on the 1st of January, 1833. I was now, for the first time in my life, a field hand. I had been at my new home but one week before Mr. Covey gave me a very severe whipping, cutting my back, causing the blood to run, and raising ridges on my flesh as large as my little finger. I lived with Mr. Covey one year. During the first six months of that year, scarce a week passed without his whipping me. I was seldom free from a sore back. If at any one time of my life more than another, I was made to drink the bitterest dregs of slavery, that time was during the first six months of my stay with Mr. Covey. Then, suddenly, my situation changed. How did this happen? One morning, long before daylight, I was called to go and rub, curry, and feed the horses. I obeyed and was glad to obey. But while thus engaged, while in the act of throwing down some blades from the loft, Mr. Covey entered the stable with a long rope. And just as I was half out of the loft, he caught hold of my legs and was about to tie me. As soon as I found what he was up to, a sudden determination to resist seized me. I gave a quick spring, and as I did so, he holding to my legs, I was brought sprawling on the stable floor. Mr. Covey seemed now to think he had me and could do what he pleased, but at this moment, from whence came the spirit I don't know, I resolved to fight, and suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose. He held on to me, and I to him. We were at it for nearly two hours. Covey at length let me go, puffing and blowing at a great rate, saying that if I had not resisted, he would not have whipped me half so much. The truth was that he had not whipped me at all. I considered him as getting entirely the worst end of the bargain, for he had drawn no blood from me, but I had from him. The whole six months afterwards that I spent with Mr. Covey, he never laid the weight of his finger upon me in anger. He would occasionally say he didn't want to get hold of me again. No, thought I, you need not, for you will come off worse than you did before. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom and revived within me a sense of my own manhood. It recalled the departed self-confidence and inspired me again with the determination to be free. The gratification afforded by the triumph was a full compensation for whatever else might follow, even death itself. He only can understand the deep satisfaction I experienced who has himself repelled by force the bloody arm of slavery. I felt as I never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and I now resolved that however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave and fat. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed 
and killing me. From this time, I was never again what might be called fairly whipped, though I remained a slave four years afterwards. I had several fights, several fights but was never, was never whipped. It's not the light we need, but fire, fire. Not the gentle shower, but thunder, thunder. We need the storm. We need the trouble. We need the whirlwind. The earth to rumble. Without a struggle, there can be no progress. But where the whip is swinging, ceaseless, ceaseless. We sing for miles into the forest. Abolition to death. 